0: I am going to read now from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. If the the writing up there or on your screen starts at verse 25, that's my fault. I gave the wrong text to uh, Kate. <laughs> um, so please forgive me for that. But if it does start at 22, that just means Kate has been awesome again. All right. Beginning at verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. The child's father and mother marveled at what he said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this morning, we're going to look for a few minutes together at this song of Simeon. This song of Simeon. It's In Latin, it's called the nunc Dimittis. The nunc Dimittis. That sounds so highfalutin and scholarly, doesn't it? What it means is, now you are dismissing. Now this character, uh, Simeon, we don't know actually much about him at all. He kind of pops up and then disappears. So we don't know his age. I have always kind of assumed that Simeon uh, was an old man. Uh, not for any particular reason. Uh, it's just the picture I've had in my mind. We don't know if Simeon was married, although probably he was married, uh, because that's what you did back then. Uh, everybody got married, and he probably had children as well. We don't know what class he came from either. We don't know if he was a rich man, a highly educated man, uh, a poor man, an uh, um, uneducated man, we don't know any of this. One thing we do know about him, however, and it's told to us in the text right in there in verse 25, he was righteous and devout. And righteous and devout simply means that, that he took his faith seriously, he was a serious Jew. He believed very seriously in God's word, and he studied the Torah, and he studied the, wisdom, the prophets and the wisdom books, and, and, and he worshiped his God with his whole heart. And another thing we know about him, and this is the thing that's very unique about Simeon, is this Simeon knew when he was going to die. Or actually, probably to put it a little more accurately, Simeon knew when he was not going to die. In verse 26, it says, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So, so Simeon is unique in the sense that, that he knew the conditions under which he, or the conditions that had to be met in order for him to actually die. How strange think about this with me for a moment um today in our modern western culture we do not think about death much and you might say to yourself well duh (laughs) of course we don't think about death much why would we want to think about death much death is morbid death is a downer death is depressing but uh, in past cultures people actually thought about talked about considered death a lot and in great detail. Uh, today it's actually strange in, in, in the, the grand scheme of human history that modern people don't think about death all that much. We just sort of think as a culture, I'm not saying Christians necessarily, but but as a culture, we, we sort of just think, well, when you die, you rot, and therefore what's the, what's the point of thinking about it? Because it's just kind of a downer. The more you think about death, the more you think about the inevitability of death, the end that death harbors for us, why would you want to think about that? You'll just get depressed. Most of us think about death kind of the way Woody Allen thinks about it. Woody Allen once said, Uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Now, that is kind of a good joke. He's a funny guy. But jokes aside, the reality is is that we we actually fear death. All people, underneath our glib comments about the end of our earthly life, are afraid of death. We we recoil at death. And the reason we do that is because we all know, deep down, underneath it all, that death is a, a perversion. Death is a, a monstrosity. If you have ever been to a funeral of a loved one, one of the things you will you will encounter is that when you see that loved one in the casket, you will say to yourself, even though they've been Properly dressed up by a funeral director, and they're in nice clothing and they have a bit of makeup on. You look at them and you say, That's not them. That's not this person that I remember, that I knew, and that I love. There are people actually who know that this is going to be the case, and so they therefore don't even want to look at them because they don't want to have that kind of memory of their loved one. When we are in the presence of death, we know that death is an interloper, that death is an invasion. Let's say you're walking along a path, maybe heading up to the Dundas Peak or something, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and the breeze is rustling through the, through the leaves, and it's warm on your face, and the sunshine's coming through, and it's, it's da- you know, dappled sunshine on the path, and it's just a glorious you know, end of May afternoon. And you walk along that path, and then all of a sudden, you encounter a dead bird. There's a carcass on the side of the path. And immediately you recoil. Because death has invaded the beauty of this life. And in a sense it has tainted it. Almost even ruined the moment. Because we view death, this happens to us instinctively, because we do view death rightly as an enemy. And we do this regardless of our worldview. You don't have to be a Christian or a religious person to to see death as an enemy. We know it's an enemy. Woody Allen, I just quoted him, you know, that glib little joke. He's an atheist, doesn't believe in a God at all. And yet, when he is candid, when he is actually being open and honest about how he really feels about death, listen to what he says. This is from an interview he did. Uh, for one of his movies, and somehow they were talking about death, he and the interviewer, and this is what he said. He said, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game. He's a huge Knicks fan, okay? Poor guy. (laughs) And they're cheering, and everything is thrilling, and one of the players is doing something very beautiful, and my thought will be, He's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because, you know, this is as good as it's ever going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless how's that for a perspective on death when we're honest we know that death is a destroyer and therefore it's a subject kind of like politics kind of like religion that we don't ever enter into in polite conversation, right? Even though the specter of it, it's always there, it's the elephant in the room, even when you get together with people that you know and love and there is now an empty seat at the table, people don't want to go there and acknowledge what death has done to come in and steal and destroy. Imagine if you were Simeon. Imagine if you knew what conditions had to be met before you could die, or would die, I should say. How would you live? Would you not live in constant paranoia? Like, you'd be kind of living your life looking over your shoulder, looking for the grim reaper, thinking that he's around every corner. Imagine if you were told, let's say, somehow you knew that you needed to have two children before you could die. What would you do? Would you refuse to marry? Would you refuse to fall in love? Would you say, I can't even get into a relationship because you want to live and therefore you run in the opposite direction even of some of these good desires that you have? Your life would be a living hell, right? But it wasn't for Simeon. Simeon, we read in this passage, he actually looks for the conditions of his impending demise to be met it's a very strange thing the context is is he's in the temple and he's looking for the messiah he's looking for the christ and of course joseph and mary they bring jesus to the temple to dedicate their firstborn to god as is uh the custom and the requirements by the law and simeon his eyes lock on jesus and what does he do does he run the other way does he does he say oh no the specter of death, the grim reaper's coming. No, he goes to Jesus and he scoops him up in his arms and he says, now, O Lord, you can dismiss your servant in peace. What he's saying is, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to die. Jesus' incarnation The second person of the Trinity coming into this world as a little baby and living among us as a human being meant that Simeon was now ready to die. He was at peace. He had no fear of death. Death is not the terrible monstrosity that uh, Woody Allen talks about. Oh, no. Why? Because he saw the Messiah. Here's the lesson of today's message, and it's pretty simple. Anyone who sees Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. I'll say it one more time. Anyone who sees Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. Now understand, anyone who sees Jesus with the eyes of faith does not want to die. I'm not saying Simeon wanted to die. I'm saying that they're prepared to die. You see this all over the New Testament. When people encounter Jesus with the eyes of faith, they are are able to face their situation and their circumstances. Remember Stephen, the deacon of the church, who in Acts chapter 7, he preached this powerful sermon and and, and as a result of that preaching, the, the leaders took him out of the city and they, they stoned him and he said that as he was dying he, he looked up and he said that he saw heaven opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of the throne of god and then he said receive my spirit the apostle paul when he was in jail in rome and he was facing impending execution he knew he was going to die and he wrote in philippians chapter one he said for me To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is that the case for these people? Well, it's because, Simeon tells us in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. See, we all know that death is unnatural. Now, you might say to yourself, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean... (laughs) Death is quite obviously natural. We see death all around us in the world. It is part of the cycle of life, right? You remember the Lion King when, uh, I don't know, is it Simba? He's talking to his dad Mufasa and he says, hey dad, you know, we eat the gazelles on the on the prairie that's kind of awful isn't it and his dad says oh no 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 it's 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 beautiful actually because you know we eat the gazelles and then when we die we become food for the land when we decompose and then the grass grows up uh because of the 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 food uh, the fertilizer that we are and then the gazelles eat the grass and so it's this beautiful circle of life but underneath, when I say what it's, it's unnatural, underneath there's something in us that, that deeply resents that. We don't say the circle of life is beautiful. We say that death is an enemy. We say that death is unnatural because we see that, that, that death brings disintegration. When you see that, that carcass of the bird on the, on the, the path, you see that it is, is falling apart. It's rotting. I know this sounds gross. But the reason we're recoiling at this, I'm trying to get a point across, the reason we recoil at this is because we know deep in our souls, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And again, if you're not a believer, if you don't have a religious faith and you recoil at death and you say that it's, it's, it's more than just a, a, a part of the circle of life but it is actually an invasion and a, and a disruptor of your life and your purpose, you've got to ask yourself why do you feel that way if it's simply a natural part of existence? We know, you see, that we were made to live. We know that we were created to live. Not just to exist but to live. You see, animals they don't contemplate their existence they just live and when they're afraid to die it's simply a matter of instinct they want to survive but we have consciousness that enables us to to remember that that life is about something bigger than just existing just breathing just having a heart that beats just having more than than neurons in our brains firing we were created you see To have communion with God, who is the source of all life. And we were created to be in union with that God and experience that life. It's like a, a mountain stream that is connected to the spring at the top of the mountain that is its source. But the Bible teaches that sin cut us off from that source. And that's what brought death into the world, uh, like, a, like a decaying corpse shows us. What should be kept together is being torn apart. It's disintegrating. The body should be an integrated whole, but death causes it to come apart. Well, that's just a picture, friends, of a much worse death that happened when sin came into the world, our spiritual death. Our souls are falling apart when we are separated from God. Just like a stream that begins to, to, to trickle and then eventually dries out because it's been cut off from the spring at the top of the mountain. And you know, if you, if you read the Bible carefully in all the descriptions of hell, even, even when not, it's not just about separation from God, but even the, the images and the analogies of fire, what does fire do? Why do you think Jesus talks about uh, the fires of hell? Why do you think the New Testament describes it that way? Well, what does fire do? When you take a log and you put it in a a fire, it disintegrates, it falls apart, right? Hell, friends, is the ongoing disintegration of the soul. You lose love, you lose joy, you lose clear thinking until the point where where there is no more of that. It is a, a pain and a misery and a despair that physical death is simply a hint of, what a great Christmas season sermon, hey? It actually is. You know, we, in our culture, we have so pushed death from the, from, from the center of our vision that we don't know what to do when it comes roaring back. Did you know that generations ago, people in their homes had something called a parlor? You know what the parlor was for? It was the place for people in your family to die. It was the place where you would lay out that person's body and you would have the neighbors come through and you would mourn for them and you would grieve together and you would acknowledge that death has been here, that enemy has been here and it has stolen something from us. But what we have done is we have pushed death further and further and further from the margins of our society so that people die in hospital or people die in hospices or people die in long-term care facilities. And I'm not saying it's wrong that people die in those places, but what I'm saying is, is that because death has been pushed so far away when something like COVID hits death comes roaring back into the center of our conscien- consciousness and as a culture we do not know how to deal with it we are afraid the whole point of the incarnation friends was to free us from the fear of death Jesus came to do many things and one of the things He came to do was to conquer death, to free us from our fear of death. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too, so, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, He too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by His death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Our fear of death enslaves us and Jesus comes into the world and frees us. And how he does that is by his own death. The final enemy, you see, death is defeated from the inside. People sometimes refer to this as the, the jiu-jitsu of the gospel. If you know anything about martial arts fighting, jiu-jitsu is a kind of fighting where, where you use the power and the momentum of your opponent against them, right? So he goes to attack you and, he, and he's pushing against you and he's pushing against you and what do you do? Instead of fighting it, you let him push against you and you roll back and you flip him over and then you're on top of him. Practice this with your play wrestling this afternoon, kids. Probably shouldn't have said that, hey eh, Mom? Jesus shared in our humanity. The infinite became finite. The eternal became temporal. The creator became the created. The ideal became real to free those whose lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. And he did it by coming to die. Because when Jesus went to that cross, you see, he experienced the cosmic disintegration that terrifies us all because on that cross, he was ripped. Our Lord Jesus was ripped from the source of life, his God. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts this. In his book on miracles, he writes this. Only he who loses his life will save it. It's a teaching of the Bible. We are baptized into the death of Christ and it is the remedy for the fall. Death is, in fact, what some modern people call ambivalent. It is Satan's great weapon and also God's great weapon. It is holy and unholy, our supreme disgrace and our only hope, the thing that Christ came to conquer and the means by which he conquered. You see, by his death, Jesus vanquished death and the devil's power was destroyed. So that if you put your trust in him, friends, this means that you can spit in the eye of death. It doesn't mean that you want to die, but what it means is that you are prepared to die, like Simeon, who said, I can die in peace, I can be dismissed in peace, like Stephen, who saw heaven opened up and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he said, receive my spirit, like Paul, who as he faced his execution said, I want to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Because for a Christian, death has been transformed. In a sense, when you are a believer and you are facing death, you can say to death itself, all that you can do, do your worst, all that you can do is make me more alive than I have ever been before. So how do we get that? How do we become like Simeon, like Stephen, like the Apostle Paul, people who who know that we face death but are not afraid of it. How does that happen? Well, there's so much in those last words that Simeon speaks to Mary, but we're going to focus in on on just a few of them. You have to let the sword pierce your soul. Verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to to be the, or to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too um, it's interesting it's hard to under, to know exactly what this means but it's it's very interesting that that Luke points out Simeon spoke to Mary and we know that joseph actually dies quite soon or quite young or in a sense uh, uh, after jesus' uh, birth but you know he was jesus was 12 year, we know he was alive till jesus was at least 12 years old but but tradition says that joseph died soon after that but mary lived over jesus entire life and simeon is predicting a tremendous amount of pain for mary that she's going to experience why Well, because she loved her son. In a sense, Mary represents every single one of us who loves Jesus Christ. And if you love Jesus Christ, there is pain to come. There is pain that you will necessarily experience. First of all, there is the pain of repentance. Do you notice that it says in verse 35, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You see, what the gospel does, what Jesus comes and does, is he reveals our hearts He shows us that we are actually more wicked than we ever dared imagine. You see, most of us, we think we're kind of bad and we're a little off, and so we'll make our New Year's resolutions and we'll try to improve things a little bit and, you know, eat a little less chocolate or exercise a little more or try to read, you know, try to read an hour a week more than we do currently or try to limit our Netflix uh, intake or things like this to kind of improve ourselves a bit. But what the Bible says is, is that when Jesus shines the light of his perfect personage upon us we recoil because we discover our hearts are laid bare and we discover that we are far more sinful than we ever dared imagine we are far worse than we would ever want to admit that when we sin against one another and we say oh i'm sorry that i did this to you and i'm sorry that you that that i did that to you and we are we are really just scratching the surface of how bad things actually are But here's the thing. That leads us to repentance. And you, friends, you cannot love Jesus without repentance. You cannot. You can admire him. You can say he was a great man. You could say he was a great leader. You could say he was very wise. You could say that he's an ethical teacher. You could say that he's a social revolutionary. You could say that he's a a guru. You could say that he's a social uh, justice activist. You could say all these things and you could admire him for all these things, but you cannot actually love him. Until you repent. Because repentance, but repentance, you see, it, it it stings. It's like a sword that pierces your heart, but it cleanses. When I was a kid, I was a very clumsy kid or a very foolish kid. I got hurt a lot. I mean, I am full of stitches and scars and scrapes and stuff like that and I used to hate it when I would get hurt and my mom would pull out the hydrogen peroxide and she would pour this stuff on my leg or on my arm or something wherever my cut was and this stuff would start to bubble and fizz and sting like the blazes but at the same time it would cleanse and it would heal And that's what repentance does. So yes, a sword will pierce your heart and you have to let that sword pierce your heart, but it's okay. Because you're being pierced by the one who loves you so much that he had your name on his lips when he hung on that cross. He was thinking of you. You were on his mind and he was thinking, I'm dying for them. Because I love them. That's the first pain. The second pain, I mean there's more pains, but I don't want to pain you with too many pains. The pain of obedience. All of us, we face forks in our lives all the time. We face choices. And oftentimes in those forks of decision that we have to make, um, the one way is the way of comfort. And the other way Frankly, is the way of pain. And oftentimes, the way of obedience is the way of pain, and the way of disobedience is the way of comfort. Because if you were to obey when you have that decision to make and you have to choose between obedience and disobedience, if you choose obedience, you might lose. You might lose in the short term. You might lose your reputation. You might lose a friend. You might lose a job you might lose a potential romantic partner. You see, in the short run, disobedience seems so much more attractive because it seems so much more more comfortable. And in the long run, but in the long run, it's actually obedience that leads to peace. And then, of course, there's the pain of separation. You know, when you're in love... To be separated from the one you love is unbearable. One of the, one of the, the, the sto- types of stories that has most captured my heart, and I think probably many people's hearts during COVID, is those stories of people who have been married for decades, and the one part- partner, uh, the spouse, is in a long-term care facility that's under lockdown, and the other spouse can't go see them. And they're separated for weeks weeks and months they've been married for decades and they're separated and to hear those two in anguish longing to hear their stories of longing to be reunited it's natural to have that well friends the gospel tells the story of our impending reunion with our beloved husband jesus And so even though the Spirit is with us now and we are united to Jesus now in spirit, we are not united to Him in flesh and we feel the pain of that and we long for that return to be reunited with our first love. And friends, Jesus promises that even death cannot ultimately separate us from Him so that when we die, we will be ushered into His presence instantly. And at the end of time, at the end of time when Jesus returns, we will be reunited to him even in the flesh. Our bodies will be reunited to him as he is bodily and we will spend eternity in perfect, blissful union with our Savior. Do you long for that? My eyes have seen your salvation you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to the end of our service. And we ask that you would dismiss us from this place in peace because we know that the final, the last enemy has been defeated by our Savior. And may we live every day in the peace of that and in the joy of that. Even as we face this pandemic and all the struggles and trials that will accompany it. May we be bold. May we not lose heart. And may we not lose happiness. Come Lord Jesus. We've just celebrated your coming 2,000 years ago and we pray for your return. Usher us into your full, fully realized kingdom because we want to see you with our eyes and hold you with our hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.